Hi, this is Umida Spitlow. I'm the Outreach Officer for CUSO VSO in Western Canada and Western United States. I often meet people in international development and don't know that they're returned volunteers. I met this wonderful lady named Anne-Catherine through her work with Canadian Crossroads International and found out that she was an RV. And, that, and, and I'm surprised to see how many people who are RVs are involved in international. So welcome. Thank you. <laughs> nice to be here. Thank you for coming. I wanted to ask you about your experiences and where did you go and how old were you and you know all that stuff people always want to know. Yeah. So I was a very young uh, cooperant or volunteer at the time because I was I turned 25 just when I arrived in Bolivia. So I was quite young for the profile of what they were recruiting then. Um, CUSO was looking for very specific professions to work in Bolivia because it is a country that has um, very specific needs. It's, it's a poor country, but it's not poor in terms of professional um, pools of professionals. There's a lot of professionals. So what they really wanted was a specific profile, and they were looking at the time for... Um, the combination, my husband and I, he was an industrial engineer and I was a geographer and they wanted somebody, a couple, to be able to work in regional planning in the area of Potosi. So between the two of us we fit two positions that existed and so even though at the time I was told that I was quite young and usually we want professionals of 30 and up and, and um, so I got to go and I was really happy. So you said the name of this town very quickly. Can you say it slowly? <laughs> Potosi. Potosi. Yeah. And where is it in Bolivia? Um, Potosi is right at the... It's called... We used to call it the center of Latin America. So Bolivia is at the middle of Latin America, and Potosi is a very central place in the high plateaus. Oh. So we're at 4,000 meters altitude, which is about 12,000 feet. Wow. And it's a very arid uh, mining town. And it's actually, what was fascinating about it is it's beautiful colonial architecture. It's the town from which Spain gained all its wealth uh, when the Spanish uh, reign was the most important in Western civilization, let's say. Yeah. Um, it was from the silver and gold that was mined from Potosí. So to this day in Spain, an expression meaning worthless, uh, not worthless, meaning, what's it called? I'm thinking in French, so... Yes. Say it in French. Because <laughs> our audience... Invaluable. invaluable. Something that's invaluable, they will say, vale un potosí. It's oh. worth a potosí. It's still an expression in Spain. Wow, so you got to live yeah. in that town. So all that money and resources that came out of that town... Went to Spain. Went to Spain. Spain pilfered it away, spent it, had parties, had a great time. This is what people say. Yes. And uh, actually... The fallout ended up in England and, and helped to finance the Industrial Revolution. So it was all the wealth of, uh, of South America, of that area, which wasn't called Bolivia then. It was you know, the middle of nowhere to them, but it was so, Alto Peru. So yeah. besides mining, is it uh, for food? You talked about potatoes. Is that like a mother place of potatoes? It is. So there's a town near Potosí called Betanzos, which has the annual... Uh, Feria de la Papa, the Feast of Potatoes. I heard about that, okay. Yeah, and you will see hundreds and hundreds of types of potatoes. Wow. Um, 
then there's ways of preparing potatoes that are just incredible, you know, dehydrated, buried under frozen earth for ages. Really? You have uh, all sorts of potatoes for all sorts of tastes. Oh, okay. A, a lot of potatoes that no foreigner likes. <laughs> <laughs> and how about you? You, you uh, did you like the food that was there? Um, no. Okay. Very honestly, no. It took me the first couple of months. I suddenly realized after a couple of months I was getting really weak and I thought I was sick. And so my office took me to a doctor and we weighed me and I was six kilos down. Wow. And it's basically because much of the food was starches. So you'd have the main meal would start with a soup. It's at lunch. A soup, but that's very overly cooked vegetables, let's say, with a few cereals in there. And then the main plate was uh, a lot of starches, so potato together with macaroni uh, <laughs> and a piece of meat, let's say, but no vegetables really to speak of. So what's interesting is when you see foreigners, I, and I include Canadian in foreigners, when, you see, when you're in South America and you see people arrive and they're all into the cuisine and finding out about the cooking, well, that's not the specialty in Bolivia. There are certain gourmet cooks, etc., but in general, you don't go to Bolivia for gourmet cooking. Okay. <laughs> uh, so you ha you go on an assignment. Does this assignment work out? What happens at the assignment? It was interesting because, frankly, it did not work out. Mm -hmm. And what worked out was that we developed some initiatives that did have results, but it took us a number of years to process that experience because we went with a lot of idealism, my husband and I. Mm -hmm. um, like, we shut up everything. We we closed our apartment. We were renting, so basically we stopped all our contracts in Canada, left everything, took all our belongings to Bolivia, thinking that we'd do this big social change and ended up sitting in an office of an organization that didn't really know what to do with themselves. Yes. So the positive side of that is that gave us room to innovate because they didn't really know what they wanted to do. Um, for me in particular, it led me to look around and think, okay, if the members of this NGO don't know what they're supposed to do, and they're looking for what they call the grassroots people to work with, I hear them talking about their domestic employees all the time. Aren't those grassroots people to work with? So I actually started becoming involved with the Domestic Workers of Bolivia. Ah! Um, just because, you know, the social worker and the secretary, while they were not working, were sincerely being critical of the household help and stuff like that. Yes. And so that led me to get involved with uh, what was then a very small movement of indigenous women's rights who are household workers for the middle class. And uh, so I'm jumping right into why this had such a big effect on me. Yeah. Since I said the placement itself was not ideal. But uh, many years later, I continued to be involved with that movement mm -hmm. when I had the opportunity of working with um, l'Organisation Canadienne pour la Solidarité et le Développement, which then merged with Oxfam Quebec. Um, I managed to work with them, and together with Dutch funding and Swiss funding, uh, we supported the domestic workers in their implementation of workshops across the country in Bolivia workshops with workers and with employers mm -hmm. to work out what would be a fair law for domestic workers and the law was passed about five years ago and so just you know that little moment back in 88 
when I was looking for what to do and and heard of this tiny movement and to see that over the last well 15 years later they, they've moved so far ahead it's great so how long did you stay in Bolivia <laughs> this turned out to be a big part of your life yeah didn't it? yeah I stayed 15 years altogether yeah it wasn't intentional I actually had the opinion at the start before I went that I did not want to be one of those Canadians who go down and then find life easy and stay. Yes. I didn't want to take advantage of my privileges. Yes. But I kept um, learning and meeting people and getting new jobs that were really interesting and that I could do, that I could have an impact with, and that I could learn from. So this is kind of a family tradition. We had lunch, by the way, everyone, and yeah. kind of dug in a bit and I see that this is not a first generation development family, is it? No, I'm definitely second generation. And I think we're going so. to produce third and fourth from this experience. <laughs> yes, my daughter's starting to get ready for Canada World Youth, hopefully. Okay. Yeah. No, my father and mother were intense travelers from, from when they were 18, respectively. I think they traveled all the time. And then they ended up working in international development, but mostly it was Africa and the Middle East. So I grew up, you know, we changed countries every couple of years until I was nine and we moved to Canada. Yeah. You know, I, as a young person thinking about what would it, why do Canadians even care? And what, it is, what is it about uh, some Canadians that make them want to do this kind of work? Uh, being from Uganda, I would imagine, I would think, wow, these people don't have enough food at home, or what's wrong with them that they come here and they yeah. do this? And I see um, amazing people doing amazing things. and uh, But a lot of the time they go and come back, and what happens in their lives when they come back is really fascinating. So yeah. you come back to Canada after 15 years, you speak French, English, and Spanish. Yeah. What's it like for you being back in Canada then? It was, first of all, it wasn't like being back in Canada. It was like moving to Canada, except uh -huh. people didn't realize it because I speak English with practically no accent. I look, you know, the right image of what a Canadian would look like if there were one single prototype of a Canadian. Yes. So, so I looked like somebody who's just moving back and, and life is going to go on. But I had never lived here as an adult, you know, doing income tax returns. Um, <laughs> It's a good example. Yeah. And, um, well, I think I had what most people say, whether you've been gone overseas for two years or for 15, is uh, culture shock coming back is, is greater than culture shock going outside your country. Because you start viewing your own reality through a different lens. So things that were normal to you and to your friends and to your family start to really upset you. And it upsets you more. I mean, if you go over, like I did to Bolivia, and you learn new things, you know that they're going to be new. So, yeah. oh, I see. So you don't get a shock. It surprises you, it's difficult, sometimes it's unexpected things, but you know that you're not in your environment. But when you move back to your country of origin or where you've grown up, um, life has gone on as usual, let's say, but you don't agree with the way things are going. You don't agree with how people are thinking. You don't like the fact that the newspaper is so empty of political analysis, whereas in South America it's always political analysis. 
You don't like that people are smiling in the streets with absolutely no reason to smile. It's an empty smile. And that gets that would get me upset. Um, and then I'd be upset at myself. Why am I upset? People are just happy. That's Why right. does it bother me? What well, would bother me? Because I just figured they don't know what's out there. And um, you were readapting. Yeah. You so were reinventing yourself, actually. Yeah, yeah. So readapting, I think, is harder than when you go overseas. Huh. Because you're, faced, you're shocked by your own reality, as opposed to being shocked by somebody else's reality. So the other part about our work is that we send volunteers overseas, they share skills, or create new places to share skills, mm -hmm. in your case, yeah. um, come back to Canada, but continue on this journey in some way, shape, or form. Tell me about your journey since you came back, because Bolivia is, is a piece, actually a huge piece of that, yeah. but it continues your journey. Tell me about that. So really where the, continue, the journey continues, I'd have to say... It's not so important whether it's in Canada or in Bolivia or elsewhere. Mm -hmm. It's that with CUSO, I got to see, I got to develop capacities in project management, in participatory research, in understanding people's needs, but also understanding the context they're in. We're always talking about how we have to understand the community's needs, but we also need to understand that the professionals who, out of goodwill or out of political analysis, want to help those communities they also have vested interests. They also want a good salary. They all, so you start to have to understand the different strata of the society. So I learned that in Bolivia, but uh, it's the same type of thing that I apply here. It's, it's a knowledge of understanding here in Canada as well, that we have different strata in society, and that uh, I can't expect to change the world if I don't also work with those different classes, let's say, mm -hmm. if I don't try to understand them as well. So if we were to talk only of international development, yeah, from CUSO I went on and worked with international development projects for 15 years, both with Canadian and with Danish organizations, with the indigenous peoples of Bolivia. So when I came back, I was able to again, in Victoria, get projects with climate change in Senegal, with the University of Victoria, with Brazil and the recycling sector, again with UVic, uh, the Center for Global Studies. So I got a lot of inter interesting international projects. But what I was getting at is what's most important is knowing that project management or program management, thinking of a social change. Mm -hmm. um, I'm now privileged and happy to be able to do it locally. It's not all about international development and it still fits in. It's looking at what we have in Canada. We have countless numbers of communities, organizations, nonprofits, um, who are looking to improve the quality of life in Canada as well. And it's very similar to what we were doing in Bolivia or to what I've also done in Western Africa. It's about um, building up your capacities as a community or as an organization, knowing how to do the appropriate amount of advocacy, knowing how to get the resources to do it, and uh, being able to work with the other sectors of society. So I know I'm getting too complex and political here, but to me it was... No, that's absolutely... That kind of makes my hair stand up, because <laughs> if I was working with CEDA, or if I was in government and I was a member of parliament, and I heard a story like that, 
I'd say it was all worth the investment because you continue to serve overseas, yes, and use your skills, but you apply that to your own community. Here in Canada. Here yeah. in Canada. Yeah. To me, what, yeah, one of the most important things I've done in the last few years has been to be part of the Canadian Community Economic Development Network. And uh, together with a number of actors or individuals and organizations who've either worked internationally or worked locally, but understanding the international context, we developed an international committee. And, and we now have annually, um, at our conference, at our annual conference, we have uh, international workshops on issues that are similar to those that we have in Canada. So what's the organization's name? It's, uh, the acronym is SEDNET. Oh, I've heard about this. C-C-E-D-N-E-T, Canadian Community Economic Development Network. We had, um, we did, you had a conference recently in... In Winnipeg, Winnipeg. was the last one. Yeah. Yes, and we sent someone there, and we had a presentation. Right, Jacques Carrière was there, yes, and uh, Melvin. Yes, and Melvin. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, see, things have changed oh, even in Canada. You were, about, you were participating in that. Yeah. The first year that we actually developed an international stream of the SEDNET conference, we did a whole series of panels that were basically international. They were overseas guests talking about fair trade, talking about microfinance, etc. And it had a huge success, but it was putting the participants of a conference in conflict because if they wanted to talk about microfinance in Canada, but they were also interested in the international panel, there might have been a conflict in terms of schedule. Oh. Anyway, so we learned from it that there was huge interest in what was happening in international issues, which means you couldn't have an international stream separate from a Canadian stream. So the following year, which was Winnipeg, yes. um, the panels were mixed. So you'd have a panel on microfinance and you'd have somebody from a, a Caisse Populaire of Quebec, from Bolivia, from Ghana, the three of them sitting together and discussing microfinance in a public uh, panel. Uh, yeah. That is inspiring. That's really amazing. Yeah. I've spent a little time with you over lunch, and I know that you have uh, children, and uh, that they too care about the world as yeah. it is. Yeah. And um, and I wanted to just say on behalf of QSOVSO, uh, well, now that you know we're a merged organization, yeah. um, to thank you for that... Um, your experience and turning something complex and using your initiative and uh, ability to adapt to create something positive and uh, and for continuing the work in that field as well as in your home in yeah. British Columbia. Yeah. Thanks. Thank so you. Much. Thank you. <laughs>